0: Bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and growth firm specializing in the addiction treatment space. Today, we are speaking with Allie Abram. Allison is the mother of a son who has been through, uh, at this point, 20 rounds of treatment. So she's very experienced, and her son is very experienced in what it's like to search for treatment, find treatment, and then have treatment ultimately not quite work out for their family um, or the program not serving the needs that they quite need. Before we jump into that, I want to mention our wonderful sponsors, The Revenue Solution. The Revenue Solution is the industry's premier service dedicated to helping treatment centers collect patient responsibilities, such as deductibles, co-pays, out-of-pockets, travel expenses, paid-to-patient checks, and services denied by insurance carriers. Servicing facilities of all sizes nationwide the revenue solutions holistic process ensures compliance while providing a game-changing stream of new income all without adding any new cost to the center the revenue solution works strictly on a contingency basis filling your bank account from day one call 844-314-8867 or email info at the today tj and his team over there are fantastic they do a great job of helping our clients and other treatment centers across the country a collect on cash pay portions a lot of times you know money that needs to be collected that wasn't collected anyway and so it ends up being a very large boon for the center um, almost right from the beginning when they're able to finally start collecting some of that money that's owed um, tends to raise revenue especially these days where we have a lot of high deductibles and co-pays and everything else So getting back to Allie and her story, she she shares a a very personal story, and so I really want to thank her for being willing to come on the show and share that story. Um, I think it's something important for all of us to hear and understand. I found that within the treatment space, you know, me and my team, when we're working in centers, we spend a good portion of time talking to patients, talking to alumni, learning what brought them to the center. Um, what brought them and kept them in the program, why they might stay connected, how they felt about it. And this is something often that I think we're not doing enough within the treatment space. You know, We're often talking about, well, what do we need to reach more people? But really we should be talking about, well, what problems are people having reaching us? Once they reach us, what problems are they having that we're not solving appropriately? And so Allie does a fantastic job of not just telling her own story, but of really highlighting a number of the gaps and areas for improvement that would really help people find treatment and find successful treatment, perhaps where they weren't able to in the past. Um, So I I really feel that this is probably one of the more important episodes that I've done, and we're really trying to bridge that gap between the people that we're helping and the people who are providing that help. So with that, let's listen to Allie's story. Uh, Can you introduce yourself and just tell everyone a little bit about who you are?
1: Yeah. Thank you first so much for having me. Um, So my name is Allison Abram. I'm a mother of three. I'm from San Diego, California. I work in corporate human resources. And my oldest son, who's 24, struggles with addiction. Um, It's been a a six-year battle. And um, I would say for the first couple, I was very silent. I really believed this was a sort of a passing storm uh, I think that, coupled with this feeling of shame, kept me very, very quiet um, until I I finally broke, and I started to recognize that I felt very isolated. And I ended up writing my thoughts, which became an op ed and um, they were posted by Arianna Huffington, and that really became a life-changer for me. Um, I began to blog. On the topic of addiction, and and really found my voice in advocacy.
0: So you've had you know a six year journey here, um, and we just recently met in San Diego. You know when we were at the Innovations Conference, and your son has been through, I believe it's twenty rehabs. Is that correct?
1: He has. I. I I kind of like to think that I'm a a treatment center expert, though it's, you know, not a title I really (laughs) want to hold or anybody should aspire to. But, um, you know, there's a couple of reasons we, I think, have been through so many. And I would say, to clarify, the large majority of those were inpatient treatment. Um, First, I, I really believe he wants Recover. He wants to find the the solution. So that's kind of kept him moving from center to center. Um, Secondarily, I have younger daughters. So I have been pretty definitive about him being in our household that required a certain um, measure of sobriety uh, just to protect them and and to keep kind of a, a peace of mind. But the other piece that I think is is critical to mention is um, he's been caught up in a lot of these um, what I would deem sort of circuits. Uh, he did the Prescott Shuffle, which if you're familiar with that, he you know you can do five to seven rehabs in a pretty short span of time. Um, he was in South Florida. Um, He was also in in Orange County, California. So um, very dense amount of activity in short periods of time. And um, when I take a step back from that, I would say as a whole, the experience was was pretty traumatic for us.
0: So, I mean, that's how we originally started connecting, right? You had written an article online um, about your your struggles with, you know, sending your son through treatment and some of the things you learned about the treatment industry, you know, as those things began to happen. And then obviously I've written a lot on the subject as well. So I think that's why I really want to dig into today is what it's like from the parents' end of the table, right? And understanding, maybe if you own a treatment center, if you work at one, how you can make it better for the parents' experience. Um, But maybe let's start at the beginning. So, when you first found out that your son was struggling, you know, how how did you feel? How did you go about searching for treatment? And then maybe talk about how those experiences changed over time after you hit the fifth, tenth, you know, and twentieth rehab.
1: <laughs> the milestones, um, yeah, and 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 I just appreciate you asking and and creating this forum because it's it's definitely lacking. Um, you know, I think in the beginning, I mean, all of us are naive in the beginning of any journey, and my perspective, I don't want to say I looked at it like it was it was a college or a camp, but I had this mindset of looking at the entire program, like programmatically they have um, this resource there or they're located at, at this site, um, and that meant a lot to me in the beginning trying to find a fit that I thought was appropriate for someone who is 19 or 20 who had never been away from home. Um, and I spent hours, I mean, just hours agonizing on the websites and, you know, trying to interpret and read between the lines and understand. I i, I think about it, you know, as I'm saying it, it almost reminds me of like, you know, renting a home, you're like, oh, does it really look like that when you get there? Is it really that large? You know, you start analyzing and interpreting to find the best fit for, for in this case, my son. Um, So I think at the onset, it was um, a lot of investment and a lot of time. When we got to more of, I would say, the middle years, um, I really had a different understanding of my son's circumstances. Um, I he had had enough treatment. I had had enough people tell me that he was a, quote, hardcore addict, um, kind of fatalistic. And I started to understand what that meant. Um, we had been through, you know, a lot of scenarios that were, um, you know, life or death. And when he was ready to be in treatment, it was like you had this window. And, you know, he had been homeless and, and many circumstances that were incredibly desperate and when you have that window your evaluation becomes very um insignificant it becomes one of asking the question you know do you have a bed do you take my insurance um i certainly did research but i didn't ask the questions i didn't care as much i just wanted to save his life um and then in contrast as as things evolved and we got in sort of the last couple of years, um, he was really more independently deciding where he would go. Candidly, I think he had gotten wise to how the systems worked. Um, I think people had indicated to him that there were, you know, potential for kickbacks or, you know, nationwide travel. I mean, I I say that sarcastically, but, you know, hey, I've always wanted to go to Florida. Um, Why not through treatment? So I was less involved in making those decisions, although I would say he always ensured that I had a a release of information on file. So um, I guess to summarize, in the beginning, you look at things very um, broad brush, and you're very much an investigator in the middle, you know, when you're desperate and and anxious and up in the middle of the night, you just want to land them somewhere. Um, and in the end, I, I kind of lost control and just was happy he was going somewhere.
0: Well, I remember when we were talking, you were saying that, you know, um, the last however many number there, like you weren't even quite sure where he was. You almost had to track him by the insurance claims. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that was an interesting scenario. So uh, I recall one circumstance in particular, he um, a transporter came to pick him up at the house Um and was taking him to Orange County, which, you know, is maximum a couple hours drive from where we are. And, um, you know, I would say an entire day had passed, and I didn't receive any follow-up. And you think, did he make it there? I know they had to pick up other people. It's all very ambiguous. And um, it might have been more than 24 hours, and I finally received a call from my son Um, it was very late at night. There was a TV blaring in the background and he said, oh, I'm in this hotel. And, and it was clear that he was, he was high. He was slurring and his behavior was, you know, obviously one of being under the influence. And, uh, I couldn't really get a straight answer out of him why he was where he was. He did say, I'm in this hotel. I'm close by the center. Um, and then, you know, the phone disconnected. So, I was in a complete panic. Um, the only thing I could think to do was to contact my insurance company and inquire and say, you know, which which treatment centers have run, you know, our insurance in the last week or so. And they did give me that information. And I started calling and asking if my son was there or if they were even aware of him. And I believe it was the second center that they acted a little strangely. They couldn't give me a straight answer. And they, they said, let's, let's let us just give you a call back in a short time. Um, when they called back, they they confirmed he was there or that he had, quote, just arrived. And I said, look, I, I know he signed a release. He should have been there days earlier. I'm totally perplexed. What is exactly going on? And I'm I'm feeling... Really uncomfortable with this situation. I, I met the transporter. I know my son was in a hotel. What what transpired? And um, the representative said, "Well, you know, he he came through a referent." And I explained, you know, said, "Explain that to me. What's a referent? I, I don't know what term you're using, and and what does that even mean to me?" And eventually, with some badgering, she she gave me the phone number of the person who had brought him in and. Um, I tracked that person down. And, and the, you know, at the onset of our conversation, I was very um, congenial. And I said, well, I understand you brought my son to treatment, you know, tell me a little bit about what happened. And he indicated to me that he was an interventionist and um, you know, basically all the good deeds he did for the world. And I said, you know, you are not, you were not hired by our family. This is his mother. Explain to me how, you know, my son, you know, and I really just, kind of lost it, read him the riot act. But ultimately, um, he had already given me his contact website and so forth. And um, I'll have to say, you know, we got into this conversation where I said, you better get your answers straight, because I need to hang up. I'm at work. But when I call back, I want to know exactly what transpired with my son. And uh, shortly after that, his phone was disconnected, and the website was taken down. So definitely a a patient brokering situation.
0: So when, when was it that you found out about kind of the whole patient brokering back end of, of some of the centers? And, you know, when did you kind of catch wind of all of that?
1: You know, I think the first inclination that I had about that was, was relatively early on. I guess I didn't, and I won't, I won't, I won't characterize this exactly as patient brokering, but it was an indication to me that something wasn't right. And, when my son was relatively new in recovery i'd say maybe a little more than a year so this was 5 years ago or so he was telling me that his peers who were just a, a little further along in recovery were getting um financial bonuses benefits from um bringing other people into the centers that they were at um having conversations with them um it just seemed very strange to me it didn't make any sense and then i guess you know there were little signs along the way that there were things going on, whether it was, oh, this place will pay for my cigarettes or this place offered to cover, um, you know, just odds and ends that, that other places weren't. So there were some strange behaviors going on. And then finally, that circumstance I mentioned occurred probably year year four and a half or so, um, maybe year five. and. At that point, my son was he he's spent enough time in treatment and he's a likable enough personality that he seems to understand what happens behind the scenes so he had he had given me some insight about some things he had seen that were you know unscrupulous or unethical um, and it became a little more clear to me i mean obviously, this is a business, but it became more clear that not always that things were happening in in the best interest of the patient. Um, and, and candidly, Nick, since you mentioned that the, the article that I had written, the rehab treadmill article, I had had that idea in my mind for a number of years and I really hesitated to write it. Um, and it sounds crazy, but I was, I was concerned about the repercussions of writing about what my son and I had seen. Um, Primarily because I think at the time he was he was in the Prescott area. That's a very small community. And I had seen the backlash. I had seen um, the interrelationships between treatment and drug court and probation officers. And it really um, it frightened me to be candid. I was I was really stunned um, by the things that went on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think think we've talked about it, but, you know, there are certain groups of moms in different areas of the country that are working directly with the FBI um, on different areas around patient brokering and things like that. And, you know, many of them have started getting lawsuits, you know, filed against them by the treatment centers. And so it becomes a very strong liability and a risk, you know, for, for anyone that puts that information out there sometimes.
1: It's true. It's true. I I became part of a a network that I was incredibly fortunate to know when my son was um, literally left out on the street with a trash bag in Florida. And um, they helped me to identify a place that, you know, he could at least go temporarily to be safe before he got home. Um, But the group is incredibly resourceful and effective in helping many young people who end up in the florida scenario they're down there um they you know my son's situation was was awful and desperate but not not at all an example of how bad it can be Um, all that to say i i personally um developed relationships with the founders and was stunned to find out that they've been threatened um they've had lawsuits filed they don't give their own children's names um for fear of of repercussion Um, and I've been involved with the FBI they've contacted me because of some of the centers that my son uh, was in in Florida uh, which have since shut down
0: yeah and then you're also so you're part of a a regular moms group just kind of a support group right that you've kind of founded and been a part of Um, you know this moms group what's the the feelings or what's the senses um, in terms of how they feel about the addiction treatment industry at this point
1: yeah, that is a great question. So just to characterize the group, um, it was um, developed out of the the larger group called The Addict's Mom. Most people are familiar with it. Um, but this is a, a group that's primarily based in California. We're extremely um, experienced in supporting our children through addiction. The average um, tenure is 11 years. And I think what differentiates us from a lot of groups, and, I, and I'm part of a lot of online groups, and I'm very... Um, I think we're all very fortunate, and they have different purposes and value to us as, as mothers and, and family members. Our group is really about evolution and growth and focusing on not just supporting one another, but looking at this as this is, this is our life, this is our journey. Um, how do we not be victimized by it? How do we ensure that we do the best by our children, um, you know, stay, stay true to our own philosophies? Um, learn as much as we can, you know, become knowledgeable about whether it's laws or treatment centers and so forth. But to specifically answer your question about, you know, what's sort of the consensus about treatment, um, I think there's just an overall lack of trust. And um, I remember when I founded, um, and by the way, it's called Warrior Women. Um, When I founded Warrior Women, the the mom that I co-founded with, Um, this was about two years ago when we met. And I recall her saying to me, I will never, and by the way, her husband was sitting with us when we we had this discussion. She said, I will never, ever send my child away. I will never send her to treatment again. And at the moment she said it, this was, I think her daughter had probably had about 13 or 12 years um, of a battle. She surprised me. I remember thinking, wow, that's a really, you know, specific and hard stance. And in the two years' time, I I really understand. Um, I think once you have invested so much of your heart, so much of your money, and as I referred to earlier, it's a very traumatic experience. So moms are looking for support or solutions you know, I wouldn't say answers. Nobody expects a silver bullet, but they expect a partnership, um, and at the least, communication. So over a period of time, what you find, especially with with mothers who are more experienced in, in treatment relationships, they've been disappointed and discouraged and in some ways um, feel like they've been cheated or taken advantage of so there's definitely um i think a, a, the sentiment is is a lack of wanting to continue to invest
0: and you know it's something i think i've seen across the country and a big conversation you know as you probably saw when you came to the conference was you know a lot of centers are struggling from a census standpoint you know how common do you think it is where, you know, there's groups of parents like yours where they're just not willing to invest anymore? I mean, do you talk to other women across the country through EdX Mom and other places like that?
1: I do. I do. Um, I think there's there's two problems that that strike me. One is this kind of feeling of mistrust or um, that there has to be a better way or another solution, because this clearly isn't working, right? Like, my comment about a rehab treadmill isn't unique to me. It's the loop that we all kind of experience. And I mean, I, I feel like I can identify um, trends in that by conversations I've had, surveys that I've done. Um, but I would say there's there's a part two, which is, you know, it's it's the fact that mothers are struggling to get their children to treatment in part because the experience has never been a good one. So their their concern or their desire to really put their whole effort or their whole heart toward, we're going to get you to treatment, we're going to get you off the street, whatever it takes kind of attitude seems to have diminished. It's sort of like, well, That seems to be the wrong plan. I've done what it takes over and over again. It's not been the solution over and over again. So now you've got this population um, of folks who have been through treatment, young people who've been through treatment time and time again, and they've become almost permanently homeless or permanently lost their, their faith in the possibility that treatment might be the solution for them.
0: And so I remember one of the comments you made, you know, in the early days, like the first treatment or the second treatment that your son went to, you made the comment that you didn't really know what to do after, right? So he did his 28 days, he came back, and you just kind of had this question in your mind, like, is he fixed? Can you talk a little bit about that, maybe what communication would have been useful to you from the treatment center or, you know, what information you were looking for that you might have now that you didn't have when he first went in?
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic question. Um, I would say holistically, communication um, is so, it it almost feels cult-like when your child goes into treatment. And I'm going to be honest, I I really appreciate blackout days. You know, I think any mother who's been through the trauma and the the texts and the calls and the panic and the life and death needs a breather. And that's great. And that's logical. Um, and it's, I get the concept around creating, you know, space, and um, you know, limiting communication, but inherently, there's this chasm, right? What's happening? Is it going well? Is it not going well? Um, if my child were injured in an accident and and needed rehab to, you know, rehabilitate their walking capabilities, I would get check-ins. I would know what's happening. Um, I would be able to speak with him independently. Um, I think the lack of um, continuity while your sons or daughters are in treatment really creates this huge divide. So whether they come back on day 28 or day 60, there's already this this gap. Um, so, you know, compounding that is is the fact that I've like most people sent my child to a different state or to a different part of the state so they come back and they're dropped back into this world and i would say there's been conversation like alluding to aftercare well you know they can go here or you know they could go to a a sober living um or they could do outpatient locally But it's all very fluid, and there's no definitive plan as to what's next. So I do want to say this before I continue. I thoroughly appreciate the hard work it takes to get someone to the point of being clean of illicit drugs for a number of days to having their body in a state where they can um, think more clearly, that they can begin to rebuild. I understand the concept, you know, is to get them to that point. But what you'll hear from many parents is it's too short. It's too short of a time. We've just, you know, we've just barely stopped the bleeding at this point. And then they come back to us. And it's clear, you know, I understand the parameters of insurance and so forth, but if they're going to come back to their home to be around the same people, whether that's the family or friends or both, what is it that we should be doing? You know, I don't know how to interact with my child any differently. Minus one parent weekend, um, over those 20 treatment centers, the interaction, the communication was almost non-existent. So. You know, give me a script. Give me a guide. Tell me how to better interact with someone who's new in recovery. Um, give him some kind of continuing support to build on his own. But what I've seen is it's just like a giant cliff. They fall off. You know, they have these great intentions, as do, you know, the families to begin this, you know, new, sober existence and no one has the tools to do that
0: you know so every center talks about a discharge plan you know did you ever receive or did you ever see a discharge plan from any of the um, treatment centers that your son came from
1: um i definitely have seen the paperwork i've had some minimal conversations about well he says he'll he'll probably go over here and do an outpatient or Sounds like he wants to get a job in a few weeks, um, but it's, I mean, the, the feeling that you get at that point is just kind of like, we've kind of dusted our hands, you know? He's, he's, he's better, he's better, and um, he's now back to you, Mom, you know, back to you, here you go, um, have, have fun figuring out what's next, he's, he's better than he was when he came in.
0: What about any kind of communication going through, you know, I mean, like when you tried to call the center and talk to them about what was going on, you know, if, if they reached out to you at all, did you get any kind of communication or were you able to establish any kind of communication around what you should be doing or what you could be doing?
1: No, I think, I think that was the, you know, is, a, is an upsetting piece. I, I won't go so far as to say heartbreaking because you really want to, want to believe that where they are is the best place for them, that you don't want to intervene. You you want to make sure that they're getting the maximum benefits um, and not be intrusive on their recovery. But if I called, if I checked in, um, you know, really the, the, the attitude was like I was a nuisance or an inhibitor, you know, so like, oh mom, <laughs> don't worry, he's fine we've got him, you know, like as if I'm part of the problem um, versus part of the solution. Um, And I think retrospectively, it's really discouraging for me because my son was in situations that I would deem unhealthy, even abusive, but he either didn't have access to speak to me or he just wanted to go along with it to not create problems. So something as silly as one of the places shaved his head. Um, He had long, you know, long, cool sort of California surfer hair, which is no big deal. He's really a pretty ordinary guy. But um, for some reason, within a day of him being there, they told him that, I forget the exact term, but something to the point of, like, you're too attached to your hair and it makes you vain. And they literally shaved his head. Um, yeah, I mean, he was 19 or 20 at the time, and it was so stunning to me um, because, you know, whether or not he was vain or – it's really irrelevant. It was his his identity, um, and I think it was really unnecessary and cruel. I contrast that to – you know, at one point, he was aware that a center was giving his medication to other people, um, and he witnessed it. Um, he was kicked out for, for calling that out, for for acknowledging that in a in a forum that other people overheard him, and wasn't able to access me or let me know things were going awry, and was dumped out on the streets without medication in his system for a number of days prior that is heartbreaking to me i mean that was it's beyond someone's imagination that that could occur and that i paid for it
0: you know so you've had some negative experiences clearly uh and what what about the other moms that you talk with i mean do they share some similar stories sometimes
1: you know, I think that's kind of the positive and the negative is that there's definitely some trends in what I hear from other moms. Um, so on a on a positive note, it's it's focused, it's consistent. I think on a negative note, it's you know focused and consistent. But I would say that aftercare is a really big one um, because it leads obviously back to the let's let's go back to the repeat cycle. Um, I think communication is another very big one. Um, Promises, expectations, I would jump into like another category, you know, um, when you're you're going through the intake, when you're verifying insurance, there's a lot of, um, I would say, kind of expectations that are set at that point, and that doesn't seem to necessarily carry through to what happens when they're in treatment, to their clinical staff, to the other folks who are engaged at different points in time. So again, that leads to a lack of, of trust to have sort of broken promises. And then the other other factor I would say that probably comes into play or that I hear relatively often is just life skills. Um, that seems to be an area that's often promised but under-delivered. So as an example, I. I Can promise you my son can teach recovery curriculum I mean he is he is a master Um, he's spent enough time he's paid attention he's been giving good marks on his engagement Um, but what does that do for him in life and and I say that with respect he you know he's had good periods of sobriety and sobriety is the foundation for anything else but he can't get out of the starting block if that's all he knows and and because his um, addiction spanned over a period of time of his late teens and early 20s, he's not equipped. He's really not equipped to go the next step in life other than, okay, I'm sober. This is a great thing. Now what do I do? And he's certainly not going to turn to his mother because he already feels, you know, deficient and embarrassed. Um, Where is he going to get that kind of knowledge? How does he know where to go from sober. And so I think, you know, going back to my comment about when someone's um, making the decision to go with a particular treatment program, the expectation is they're going to begin to at least have the beginnings of, of resourcefulness, of tools um, that they can carry through to, to just day to day life.
0: So when you started looking for treatment centers, you know, as you got up into the higher numbers, you know, did you start looking for alternative clinical protocols or something that would provide life support, or sorry, life skills, um, rather than the same thing that, you know, didn't seem to be working the first couple times around?
1: Yeah, you're, you're dead on. I mean, that's that's exactly what started to happen was I began to look in, in the later, I, I recall the last Center that I identified and, and chose and um, interestingly it was probably one of the most ex- successful experiences my son had um, as far as the amount of time he spent there as far as the amount of sobriety he had afterwards and I I looked not only for kind of the life skills which you know honestly there's there's not a lot of substance when it comes to that I looked for more alternative types of treatment so Um, Instead of the standard, we're going to do the 12 steps, we're going to do individual meetings and group meetings, there were other more um, alternative lifestyle-type learnings, whether it be something like, this isn't a great example, but acupuncture or um, I know this one place that he was at that was a successful experience had someone come in and talk more about, like, CBD oil and other alternatives to kind of alleviate different things that were going on, emotions they were experiencing. Um, So I think I began to lean to more holistic alternative, um, anything that wasn't kind of the standard because the the nuts and bolts didn't cut it. Um, I don't think that I really found many places that elaborated on life skills that seemed to be lacking, you know, in, in every center that I researched, um, but at least something that was different was, was, was the place I was headed, you know, if this doesn't work, what else can we try?
0: Sure, and then, so, you know, when you're looking over these websites and things like that, you know, did you feel that you were able to find the information you were looking for, or how did you differentiate between centers?
1: Yeah, I... <laughs> You know, I think in the beginning when I looked at the websites, I really looked at them with such um, promise and hope. And, again, I studied them like I was studying a vacation rental, like, oh, I'm really going to analyze this. And now I guess I'm more jaded. I mean, the, all the sites look the same. They all use the same terminology. They all make kind of similar promises. They all have great Smiling, happy pictures and beaches and, you know, horses. And um, it all just looks like a lot of nonsense to me. I look at it as just really fancy marketing. And I'm sorry for the people who invested a lot of time in, in making them look appealing, but they just seem like a lot of nonsense. And I tried to get past the, the images. And to the heart of it, and that brings a different point, oftentimes when you call treatment centers, you get someone who really just doesn't seem like the right person you should be talking to. Um, And it kind of ranges from someone who doesn't really have a lot of compassion or understanding about what you're going through to someone who just wants to kind of hook you in and um, know what you can afford to pay or know what your insurance is. Not that I think it's, you know, your first call should be some kind of therapy session, um, but it's, you know, it's another thing that I've heard from moms. It's like um, I was just at a retreat with my warrior women group, and we were talking about a particular facility, and I said something to the effect of, oh, right, my son was going to go there, and um, it was a private pay, and we were going to pay about." nine hundred dollars a month and the mom who was sitting across from the table from me literally looked like she was gonna you know burst into tears and she said my son was there and we paid seven thousand dollars a month and I had to take a second mortgage on my home and the entire meal it just kept you know coming up and and it just was like this this Frustration and anger, you know, because it all really begins with that intake as you're vetting the facility and you're vetting the fit and you're in this very vulnerable spot, um, you know, your decisions become um, more difficult to make. You're, you're, you're under duress is what I would say.
0: And what was that experience like, you know, talking to the representatives on the phone, you know, because you're saying that the websites didn't provide you any meaningful information, right? They all kind of look the same. When you were talking to the admissions rep, you know, were you able to get deeper and more insights into what the program was like when you called?
1: Yeah, I think it really depended. Like I, I started to, to mention, I didn't finish that thought. You know, I my general feeling was, the person who was answering the phone probably shouldn't have been the person answering the phone. Um, It was rare that I would, I would speak to someone that didn't sound bored. um, Like they were reading off a script. um, Like they were just, you know, kind of mechanically going through the motions or just desperate to hook us in and be done. Like, okay, great. This is how much it costs. This is what you can do. We have a bed, let's get them in now. Um, And uh, I don't know that I ever heard very many or experienced very many conversations that made me say, wow, I really feel strongly. I really trust this program. I really think they're understanding what I'm needing or what my child needs. I mean, keep in mind, every time I put my, my, my child on a plane, he was incredibly vulnerable. Um, he's, been an active addiction he might have had to have drugs just to get on the plane it might have taken you know a lot of tries to get us to the airport um there's a lot of emotion and physical pain that's happening for everyone in the family and just to say well i i hope you get there i hope that person picks you up and it's everything they said it's going to be how many times in life do you do something like that with anyone I mean, let alone the person that you love more than anything in the world. I mean, nobody just sends their kid to college, right? You don't just toss them on a plane and hope that the website was everything that it looked like it was going to be. So I guess my short answer, and that was a very long way to get to it, um, is I don't know that I was ever convinced. But I often felt like it was the best option at the time, and I had to take a risk.
0: So I think you've highlighted a lot of issues that you've had and other moms in your um, circle have had in terms of lack of clarity of communication, um, inability to really understand what the value of the program is, either from the website or from the representatives that you speak to, um, big issues with coming out, you know, after care, discharge plans in terms of there being any kind of really plan that was followed up on or communicated to you. Outside of all those issues, you know, is there anything else that you want to maybe reemphasize or mention that you didn't mention about ways that treatment centers could improve and could actually um, help, you know, families like yours better than than the experiences that you've had?
1: Yeah, I I think you hit a lot of them. Um, One that I didn't mention, I would suggest, is just. Utilizing the family, utilizing a mom, a dad, whomever is engaged, um, it really is a partnership. I mean, we all know that their stay and treatment is going to be limited. How does that continue? How can we be aware and learning and conscious throughout those 28, 30, 60 days, whatever it is? Um, and I also think, you know, establishing expectations that are carried through in the way of documentation. You know, this is what we expect to happen. You know, again, nobody starts a business or goes to college. Um, You know, they don't just say, hey, send them for for a period of time. Hopefully they'll come out with some kind of, you know, usable skill. You know your kid's going to take X amount of classes. There's going to be semesters. There's goals. You know, there's milestones um, that you can support them in um, their journey. But I found more than not, even when I was given some, you know, kind of sketchy roadmaps, those constantly changed without explanation. Um, there's just a general kind of feeling of instability, um, whether you say that instability is part of the lack of communication, the instability is a lack of um, expectation or follow-through, everything seems very arbitrary and, um, and not in a customized sort of way, in a very, you know, undefined, the world sort of dictated by insurance sort of way. And I would kind of finish with the thought that we all know, and I certainly respect that treatment is a business. It has to be dictated by sometimes insurance or um, you know the ability to pay for the resources that are that are available to our kids. But there should be a clause, a mindset, a plan. If my son may get cut off at day fifteen, what are we going to do? If he gets cut off at day thirty, what are we going to do? It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that that could occur. There just needs to be backup plan. You know, how do we continue this momentum in a way that will be effective for everybody involved? Because as it stands now, it's almost like the rug gets pulled out from all of us. And it's happened to me probably 19 of the 20 times that, wow, what we said we were going to do, we can't do anymore. And, well, see you later. He's been a real pleasure. And that doesn't make any sense for anyone. I mean, a lack of transition in any circumstance is going to lead to failure. So I would just say to be mindful of creating a format um, that is mindful that you might not be able to continue with a plan um, or protocol that was initially established
0: yeah i keep hearing you know, it comes back down to communication i think with the families and letting them know what's going on you know even when you look when you first started looking i'm kind of curious you know i'm sure you didn't understand all these nuances you know you've got your phps and your iops and your residentials and your detoxes you know um how well was that kind of explained to you when you first started communicating with treatment centers
1: yeah i, I love that you asked that because y- you highlight the fact that you learn a whole nother language right you begin to learn by trial and error a little bit about um, you know the format of or the structure of treatment you learn about insurance you learn about things that just generally you don't have knowledge of and they're the barriers they're the barriers because Without that understanding, you're really at a disadvantage. So it was all trial and error. I definitely don't think that even though I deemed myself in the beginning an expert, I know everything. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, we hit so many of the the pitfalls that I've learned, um, and I've tried to convey um, that knowledge to others, but I I would be really... Hard pressed to say there is, um, there's a way to do this that you don't have that experience. It's all by word of mouth. If I happen to know someone who knows a treatment center that's there or that they had a good experience, um, if I happen to know that you can ask for, you know, uh, a longer stay in inpatient because of dual diagnosis or whatever it might be, it's really just, um, it's almost luck that you learn or it's by hard knocks.
0: So I'm interested, you know, you've had these extensive experiences over, you know, multiple years here. Would you say that you know what to do now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because I, I have a lot of, um, a lot of peers who are struggling right now to make a decision about, you know, should my, should my um, child go into treatment again? Is this the best step? Um, and, of course, you know, we, we have these types of conversations. I think I would, quote, interview the treatment center differently. I think I would ask some, some more specific questions based on my experience. But I have to say I don't know that I have the trust that those questions would would ensure that the experience was a good one. and um, I just have kind of, like many many of my um, fellow moms have come to the place where I don't expect much. I really am just looking for life and death at that point. I'm looking for someone to save my kids' life um, to stabilize them and know that, it's probably going to be up to me to sustain that, um, with very little insight or knowledge, you know, beyond my own reading, beyond my own networking. Um, I don't expect much from treatment.
0: It's kind of sad to hear. Um, but I think, you know, so you mentioned too that your son and I've seen this Quite consistently, but your your son knows, you know, like the, for example, the twelve step programs backwards and forwards, right? He can probably teach the um, the group classes. So I think that's something that's being missed, you know, in the field. Is you know, we look at your experience, we look at your son's experience. You know, you've been through twenty different rehabs, and yet you still there's a lot, there's more questions than answers. You know, it's not saying there's a one size fits all anywhere in there, but you would think after that, all that time you would have better answers than you do, or at least a guiding light, you know, of a direction to go in. And so I think for our listeners, you know, it's important to notice these gaps and say, well, man, you know, if these are the experiences that our patients and our families are having, how can we improve this for the better? Because right now it's not working.
1: I I agree. And I would also highlight um, for the listeners that, what I'm conveying to other um, mothers are more red flags and warnings than great advice. And so if that's happening, you know, with me, with my, my network group, that's happening on a larger scale. So what you get is this, this panic and this fear and this mistrust. And then in conjunction with that, we, we haven't mentioned it, but it, <laughs> the bills, the bills that come. You know the the sixty thousand, fifty thousand um, dollar bills, um, the fifteen hundred dollar drug tests that happen every three days. Nobody mentions any of that. So I think the money, and I don't want to say it's secondary. Every one of us um, feel the financial strain, but there is not a price tag I will put on my child's recovery ever. If I thought That there was a program that could help him I would put the second mortgage on my house I would do whatever it takes and I guarantee you any parent any mother out there would say the same thing so it's not it's not the money it's the experience it's the relationship that's really something that that leaves this trauma that doesn't make you want to try again. It makes you hesitant and it makes you very jaded about investing again.
0: Yeah. I love that comment because you're right. You know, anyone's going to invest anything they can in a loved one or themselves to get better. Right. You know, if I needed heart surgery, I was going to do whatever it took to get that heart surgery. But if you don't trust the providers to you know get you through to the other side um then why would you make that investment and also i'm wondering too you know there's a lot of pl- uh, publicity around the the treatment space you know right now do you do you and the um, the moms that you talk to are you watching that and following that or is it really just kind of internal conversations that you guys are having about your experiences
1: no, there's a lot. Of, I, I belong to quite a few sites, and there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of celebration, to be um, honest, when um, programs have been taken down, when patient brokers are take, taken down. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't think there's a mom that I know personally that hasn't had um, an experience where the child's been taken advantage of or they've been taken advantage of. So that's another you know, really big factor in this equation is, it's not just anecdotal, it's not just our opinion. I mean, there's illegal things and unethical things that are happening um, that are now, you know, being identified and and punished. And so um, we don't know what we don't know. And you have to look at the website as a marketing piece. You have to interview the person that, you know, maybe isn't even the most competent person, um, to do the intake and decide, is this what I want to invest in? Um, and you have to believe that whatever has been promised is, is actually going to occur because you're dealing with a sick person who is getting that treatment um, that you probably aren't even going to talk to. So I think it's just inherent in the whole relationship that there's a real critical need for trust. And for communication. And I know we keep going back to that, but I, I really want for your listeners to understand the circumstances from our point of view. You know, there's no way other than just to believe that this is going to be okay. And I, I say that with the disclaimer I don't expect anyone to fix my child, I don't expect anyone to fix addiction. It's not, you know, a magic wand that anyone's going to wave, but I do expect that my child and that my family is treated with respect and dignity, and that has not happened. I feel like we are um, really insignificant, just sort of grasping and hoping that the promises um, implied or, or, or made, are going to be kept. And that's a very desperate position to be in.
0: Jeez. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, there's been a lot of articles lately and I know we've talked about this cause obviously I'm aware of it on the marketing end, but you know, you'll see things like Facebook groups that end up being run by, You know, maybe it's a broker or maybe it's a treatment center, Um, you know, Facebook pages that look like nonprofits, but aren't websites that look like nonprofits and helplines, but aren't, you know, how, how aware is the community of these kind of false flags that are out there?
1: Yeah, there is definitely a lot of awareness. And I think it varies, obviously, from group to group. So depending on who the moderators are or the admin um, or the founder of the group, it depends on how keen they are to, to those circumstances and how quickly they'll eradicate someone like that. But there are a lot of people who obviously are imposters. Um, we have you know, identified moms, momateers, we call, you know, that are out there pretending um, I've received multiple direct messages and private messages and direct emails, um, not just um, by being a member of the sites, but through my writing, people will contact me, they'll make promises. Um, It's really disappointing, and it's incredibly disheartening. Um, Again, you've got people taking advantage of of folks when they're in their most, um, you know, desperate state. So there's definitely consciousness about that.
0: So, any final thoughts here? Um, anything else that you want to say that we weren't able to cover?
1: No, I just I think that you know, I, you know, you mentioned that I was able to attend the foundation's um, event, and one of the things that I recognized there is is um, and, and that I knew too, uh, for the most part, the people who are involved um, in recovery in treatment centers are there for the right reasons. There are some incredibly compassionate um and motivated people. We are experiencing a lot of the same frustrations, and I just suggest that there's there's an opportunity for um more collaboration, stronger partnership um, it's just time for a change. I don't think treatment as it exists now in its sort of standardized format is working for anyone. It's not working for. The person in recovery. It's not working for um, the treatment center. It's not working for the families. Um, So I'm I'm really hopeful uh, that we can all begin to recognize that we're having the same experience.
0: Well, you know, one of the comments that you made that struck me um, in San Diego was the fact that you're sitting in the room and they're talking about their struggles, like maybe talking to parents or trying to find patients and things like that. And you're like, well, why aren't you asking us, (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Nick, that was so great because, um, you know, obviously the the format of that event was not for for family members. And so I joked that I was incognito. People assumed, obviously, that I was, uh, you know, a a member of treatment center staff. And there would be these, these questions or comments like, oh, the parents, oh, the mothers, if the mothers would only do. And it's like, just tell us. Tell us, explain to us what isn't working. Um, We are open. And I mean, these are moms who have nothing on their mind. First and foremost, their priority is getting their kids moving in the right direction. And it's like, you know, there's this disconnect, this this inability for us to be working together. And I I just couldn't understand why.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest disconnects. Allie, what's the best way for people to reach you if someone wants to reach out and connect?
1: Yeah, I would love for people to go to heartofawarriorwoman.com. It is um, my website. It's got some blogs. It's got some resources for moms to attend our biannual retreat. the a great get-together where we support one another. We also have fun. That's possible, too. Um, it also is going to announce my new book, Heart of a Warrior Woman, which shares the journeys of these amazing moms and how they've learned and grown. And you can also reach me by email at Abram, which is A-L-L-Y-A-A-B-R-A-M at yahoo.com.
0: Fantastic. All right. Appreciate you all for joining us here. Thanks so much.